The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Today we are continuing our study this morning in Thessalonians and we're in chapter 5. Now let me remind you that from chapter 4, verse 13, through 5.11, the context is the second coming. Now, in this section, Paul is answering some questions that Timothy had brought back from his visit to Thessalonica. Remember, Paul had to leave there in a hurry. He was only there for a few weeks. He basically got driven out. He couldn't stand it being away from them any longer, so he sent Timothy there to minister to them. Well, Timothy come back with good news, but he also had some questions from them. And one of their questions was about their loved ones who had died. And they're wondering about their loved ones. Are they going to miss out on the second coming? I mean, we know it's soon, and, and they were waiting for it, Paul said, but their loved ones are dying, so what happens to them? Well, Paul assured them that they're not going to miss out on the fact that the second coming happened, that their loved ones will be actually, those who have died will be the first to rise as he tells them. Now, at the end of chapter 4, Paul dealt with the subject of the resurrection of the dead and the parousia, which were synchronous events. And then we come into chapter 5, and it says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, we have no need to write any, anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, this is probably not the best place for a chapter break, you know, those aren't inspired or anything. People just stuck them in there. They definitely make them easier for us. But he is continuing here the discussion that he's been having on the second coming. And verses 1 through 11 are closely linked to verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4. We see that in 18, he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then in 5.11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So the subject of the second coming continues, but we have a new aspect that he's approaching. I mean, he's changing the theme a little bit. He's going into a new aspect, and now he's going to talk about the day of the Lord. And we see this because notice that Paul calls them brothers, which is often used by Paul to mark a transition to a new subject. He'll say brothers, and then he adds and starts a new subject. So we're still talking about the second coming, but we have a new aspect of the second coming. Now, the parousia involves three synchronous events, and we've talked about this many times. We saw two of them in chapter 4, the resurrection of the dead, the parousia. What else happens at this time? It's a one-word answer. What? Judgment. Okay? you got the second coming of Christ, you have resurrection of the dead, and the judgment of the unbelievers, the antagonist. All right? So at Christ's coming, he not only raises the dead, he judges his antagonists. Now, the words now concerning are peri de in the Greek. And we've seen these words previously. We, he used these same words in 4.9. He used them in 4.13. And they indicate that Paul is responding to yet another question. So every time he answers one of their questions, he says, now concerning. And the question probably, I would think... We don't, know, we don't have the questions, we just have the answers. But I think he's answering them. They were asking the question, when is the day of the Lord going to happen? When is all this stuff going to come down? I mean, 
they knew they had a general idea, but they're asking more specifically, when can we look forward to this? And he says, the times and the seasons. Now, times here is from the Greek word chronos, which is a word from which we get our word chronology. It simply means clock time or calendar time, chronological time. It could be the idea of a particular date when predictions would come to pass. And then the word seasons here is the Greek word kairos, which means seasons, epochs, events. It looks at time not from the viewpoint of a day or an hour. It looks at time from the viewpoint of an event, an epoch, something that happened. So I think we can assume that their question was about time. When will the day of the Lord happen? Notice what Paul tells them. He says, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now, he's here using the same words as he did in 4.9. And he's assuring the church that they didn't need to add anything to the instructions they already had. All right, you got enough on this, you don't need anything else. Look at 4.9, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. This comment with what is said in the next verse about the day of the Lord, he's going to say, you yourselves are fully aware, shows that Paul had taught them carefully and thoroughly about the end time events, including the day of the Lord that will usher in judgment. And the Thessalonians were well taught about the return of Christ and prophetic matters. He said, you don't need anything else. You don't need any other teaching on this subject. Excuse me, he says, for you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, the words fully aware here are the Greek word akribos, and it means accurately, precisely. It was a word of precision, a word of accuracy. Their previous learning had been so adequate, so definite, so specific regarding the Lord. He goes, you don't, you're fully aware. You know what's going on here, all right? You don't need anything else. <clears throat> now, thinking of the way he's answering the Thessalonians here in their question, I want you to notice how he answers the disciples' question back in Acts chapter 1. The disciples ask him, so when they had come together, they said, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is really what the book of Acts is all about. It's the redemption, the restoration, the resurrection of Israel. And as the Gospels end, Yeshua has been rejected by the Jewish leadership. They have put him to death. They killed the Messiah. So now what happens to all the promises that God had made to Israel? Does God stop with Israel and turn to the church as the dispensationalists teach? No, what we have to understand is that Israel, national Israel, was a type. And all of her promises were fulfilled in Christ, who is the true Israel, and His body, the church. Believers, we are true Israel because we are in Christ. We are inheritors of all of God's promises. The church is the kingdom of God. So true Israel is all those who have trusted Christ And it includes Old Covenant saints who look forward to the redemption of the Lord. It includes all the New Covenant saints, those who have put their trust for eternal life in Christ and Christ alone. Physical, national Israel was a type. And that type was fulfilled in Christ. Now once the type is fulfilled, it's the picture. We don't need the picture anymore. We have the reality. The shadow's gone. 
the reality is here. So the nation Israel, the Jewish people, they have no significance now in God's plan and purpose. That's hard for some people to understand today, but God is done with the nation Israel. They were a type, they were fulfilled. Now it is all about Yeshua, again, who is true Israel, and those who trust in Him. Now, in response to the disciples' question about the redemption of Israel, He answers them this way. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed in His own authority. Now, times and seasons here is the same phrase used in our text in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, you guys don't need any further instruction. The previous instruction are adequate, specific. You got it. You got all you need. So why did Yeshua tell his disciples that it's not for you to know the times or seasons? And tell the Thessalonians they have everything they need. What's the difference? Why the different responses here? Well, Yeshua tells his disciples it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. And he tells the Thessalonians, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And you see the differences there? Yeshua refers to times and seasons that the Father has fixed in His own authority. And Paul refers to yourselves fully aware of the day the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So they're both talking about the exact timing of the parousia. Yeshua says the Father has it fixed in His own authority. Paul says He's going to come as a thief. In other words, nobody knows when a thief's coming. That's the whole idea of a thief. They don't want you to know when they're coming. All right? You'd be ready. They'd get shot if you knew they knew you were, co- were coming in, all right? So Yeshua doesn't rebuke the disciples for their question in Acts, and he really doesn't give them a yes or no. Instead, he just said the information belonged to the Father only. And this is the same thing he told the disciples in reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son but the Father. Now, many people today use verse 36 to prove that we can have no knowledge about the time of a future to us, second coming of Christ. But that day here refers to the passing away of the heavens and earth, which was the destruction of Jerusalem, the old covenant. So Yeshua had already told them in verse 34 that it's going to happen in their generation, which is about 40 years or so. So they don't know when it's going to happen. They don't know the day or the hour, but they have a general time frame. And, you know, today, or not just today, always, when a woman gets pregnant, we know that she's going to have a baby in about 40 weeks, right? We don't know the day or the hour. And boy, that can really change, you know, depending on the baby. You can be, all right, my 40 weeks are up and you're still waiting and waiting. You know, we don't know the day or the hour it's going to happen. But we know it's about 40 weeks. That's exactly what Yeshua is telling them here. It's in their generation, 40 years, but we don't know the day of the hour. So the Thessalonians had been taught all about the day of the Lord from Paul, and he didn't need to add anything to what he already taught them because they knew it would come suddenly and without warning. That's what he means by a thief in the night. All right, well, let's talk about the day of the Lord. We're going to park right here for the rest of our time and just see if we can understand what this phrase means. When you hear the phrase, Day of the Lord, do you know what it means? This phrase is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 2.20. It's used here in our text. It's used in 2 Thessalonians 2.2 and in 2 Peter 3.10. Let's look at its other uses. 
in Acts 2.20, he says, And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. Now, he is quoting here from Joel chapter 2, but he doesn't really tell us much about the day of the Lord here. So we go to the text in Thessalonians, and he says, Not, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word, or by a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord had already come. Again, this doesn't tell us much about the day of the Lord either. What we learn here from this text is some were saying it had already happened. Paul says, don't, don't be alarmed by that. People telling you it's already gone by. So that doesn't tell us a lot either. But here's a text that we're going to get the most information from in 2 Peter 3. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's exactly what our text in Thessalonians says. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are in it will be exposed. All right. This text gives us the most information on the day of the Lord in the New Testament. Now, most Christians would say, this is the end of the world as we know it. You can understand that, right? I mean, when you read that, does it sound like the end of the world? Yeah, it does if you're not familiar with the Tanakh. Okay, if you're not familiar with the Old Covenant Scriptures, then you read this and you go, that just sounds like the end of the world. They think it's the destruction of the physical heavens, that the earth, it's all just going to be burned up and that's the end. Well, here's the question. Is the world going to someday come to an end? I think, yeah, not according to the Bible, but I think the great majority of people, both Christians and non-Christians, think it will. I mean, the end of the world is a theme of books, movies, endless prediction as to when it's going to occur, how it's going to occur. We are constantly told that the world's going to get worse and worse and worse until God destroys it. All right? One problem with this view is that it violates the hermeneutical principle of the analogy of faith. Now, we've talked about this a lot, and hopefully you know what that is. The analogy of faith means Scripture interprets Scripture. That means no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. Now, does that make sense? Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't say this over here, then that over there, and it contradicts. So here's what we know. Elsewhere in Scripture teaches that the world will not end. All right, let's look at a few of these. In Genesis 8, this is after the flood. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. That's a promise. He says, why? Watch, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You believe that? (laughs) It's evil from his youth. Now watch, God says, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now people will say, well, the Lord destroyed the earth first time by flood, but he's going to destroy it again by fire. Okay, let me ask you something. Is God's promise here, I'm just going to change the method of killing you. Instead of drowning you, I'm going to fry you. Oh, that's comforting, isn't it? No, I think I'd rather be drowned. But that's not what he's talking about here. 
Okay? What he's promising here is not to destroy the earth again. He destroyed all people except Noah and his family, eight people. Everybody else died. He said, I'm never going to do that again. So that would mean he's not going to burn up the earth again. <clears throat> Look at Psalm 148, 4 through 6. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for he command, and they were created. He established them forever and ever. Okay? The heavens. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, it shall not pass away. Now, what decree did God make concerning the establishment of the heaven and earth that they'll never pass away? We just read it. Genesis 8, 21. All right? God said he would never again destroy every living thing. I think we can trust that God keeps his word. Right? All right, look at Psalm 78, 69. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. See, if God has established the earth forever, how's it going to end? Psalm 119.90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Ecclesiastes 1.4. A generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. So it sounds like these verses teach the earth well, Earth is going to last forever. And then you might be thinking, what about the verses that say the world's going to end? Where are those verses? I don't know. Well, this might be one, Matthew 13, 40. And therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So shall it be at the end of the world. And people say, see, it teaches the end of the world. What's the problem here? Translation, King Jimmy. All right. Translating the word I own, which is the Greek here. All right. The Greek word I own means age, not world. And this is a really bad translation because it just supports these people's idea. Oh, the world's going to end. No, it's not going to end. An age can end. A dispensation, a period of time can end. And we understand the earth still goes on. The Bible talks about the end of the age, but never the end of the world. And most newer translations, probably all newer translations, have fixed this error in the King James. All right. So Yeshua is here talking about something that will happen at the end of the age, the age he was living in. William Barclay writes this, Time was divided by the Jews into two great periods, the present age, and the age to come. And we see these two ages listed all through the New Testament. This age and the one to come. The present age is wholly bad, beyond all hope of human reformation. It can be mended only by the direct intervention of God. When God does intervene, the golden age, the age to come, will arrive. But in between these two ages, there will come the day of the Lord, which will be a time of terrible and fearful upheaval like the birth pains of a new age. And that's right, in between this age and the age to come, the day of the Lord would come. Now, Zechariah 14 teaches us that the day of the Lord and the destruction of Jerusalem were connected. All right, and that's important. Hang, hang on to that. Keep that in your mind. The day of the Lord and the destruction of Jerusalem, they're connected. The destruction of Jerusalem marked the end of one age, the Jewish age, and the beginning of the new age, the Christian age, or the new covenant. 
Now, someone may be thinking, but, but that text in 2 Peter sure sounds like the end of the world. To us, maybe. But if it's talking about the end of the world, the heaven and earth have not passed away yet then, if that's what Peter's talking about. And so if that's true, shouldn't the Mosaic law still be in effect? Look at what the Lord said in, in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Now, if heaven and earth passing away is the end of the world, and we'd all agree that end of the world hadn't happened yet, right? Okay, so then the Mosaic law is still intact, Every bit of it, all 613 commandments need to be followed until the world ends, if that's what heaven and earth passing away means. What this means is the Jews should be sacrificing animals every day. Every single day the Jews sacrifice two lambs, one in the morning, one at night, many, many more on special days, holidays, the feast days, they sacrifice all kinds of animals. When is the last time Judaism killed an animal? Let me tell you this. Judaism has not sacrificed, has not sacrificed an animal since August of AD 70, when the temple was destroyed by the Roman army. That's it. It stopped. Because God's saying, I'm shutting this down. I want you to know that heaven and earth is ending right now. We're not going to do this anymore. We're moving into a new system. And he shut it down and he made it so clear, it's done. Because when the temple was destroyed, all the genealogical records were destroyed. And you can't be a priest unless you can prove your genealogy. Right? You've got to prove that. And if you don't have a priest, who sacrifices the animals? You can't do any of this stuff. None of it's, it's all done, people. God, God made it very clear, it's all done. But if the heaven and earth hasn't passed away, it's supposed to be in effect. And most believers today would say, obviously heaven and earth have not passed away because the earth hasn't been burned up. The elements have not melted. So yeah, we're still there. Because we've got to see this pass away. We've got to see the heavenly bodies burned and dissolved. Most Christians would come up with an end of the world scenario because, again... They'd, they'd come up with an end-of-the-world scenario from reading this. And like I said, you read this and it sounds like the world ends, but if you're familiar with the first three quarters of your Bible, okay, which is called the Old Testament, I don't think that's a good thing to call it, because when something's old, what do you do with it? You get rid of it. All right? The Old Covenant is old. What happened to the Old Covenant? It was done away. The Old Testament's not done away, it's very helpful. It's very useful. That's what we learn about the language from the New Testament. So we have to understand the writers of the Bible, of the New Testament, were all Hebrew. They got their language from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh. And so if you want to know what something means, then you go back and find out, well, how was that used before? Notice what Paul said in Acts 26-22. Paul said, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets 
and Moses said would come to pass. You know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And look what he says here. He's saying, I'm not telling you anything other than what comes out of Moses and the prophets. Everything I'm telling you comes from the Hebrew Scriptures, Paul says. So if you want to understand Paul, if you want to understand the New Testament writers, you've got to understand the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the first three quarters of your Bible. How many times do you pick up a book and go to the last quarter and start reading? You'd kind of be lost, wouldn't you? I don't understand why this character is doing this. I don't understand what... Of course you don't understand. Read from the beginning. It's the same with the Bible. Start at the beginning, and then when you get to the New Testament, oh, now it makes sense. If you're not familiar with apocalyptic language that the Scriptures use, the prophets use, you're not going to understand what Peter's saying here. Because if you approach the New Testament apocalyptic language without recognizing it for what it is, you don't know how to deal with its images, its symbols. You're going to go astray. Notice the use of apocalyptic language in Psalm 114, 1 through 4. When Israel went out from Egypt, all right, this is talking about the Exodus. They're going out from Egypt. The house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Okay, you got the sea running away here because it's scared. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams and the hills like lambs. Now, did the mountains really skip? Have you ever seen a mountain skip? How would a mountain skip, okay? This is what's called apocalyptic language. Well, listen, you have people who, they want to, you got to take the Bible literally. Okay, explain this to me. What's happening here? How does a mountain skip? How do hills run? How do hills act like lambs? In the apocalyptic language, great commotions, judgment on the earth are often represented by commotions and changes in heaven. This language is not to be taken literally. You've got to understand that. The Bible's written in a lot of different languages. In this, not different types of languages, but I mean different styles. You have you know, apocalyptic. You have didactic. You have poetry. You have to understand what kind of literature am I reading? What is this saying to me? So let's go back to the Hebrew Scriptures and see how heaven and earth, sun, moon, stars are used there and see if we can figure out what's going on in Peter. So where would we start? If we're going back, where should we go? How about let's go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 37.9. This is Joseph's dream. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Okay, first of all, it's kind of dumb to share this with your brothers when your brothers don't really like you in the first place, okay? Your daddy's favorite, they know it, they're not fond of you, and you're saying, hey guys, I had a dream, guess what? All this stuff's going to bow to me. Now, is Joseph's dream about the literal sun, the moon, and the stars bowing to him? My question would be, how does the sun bow? This may confuse us, you know, because we're like, how does this happen? Joseph's father knew exactly what he was saying. Because look at Joseph's father's response in verse 10. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you dream? I don't know how I could blame him for having a dream. I don't know how you, you know, sorry, dad, I didn't mean to have it, you know. <clears throat> now watch what his dad says, though. Shall I and your mother 
and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you. And Joseph said, Dad, Dad, why am I talking about you guys? I said the sun, moon, and the stars. But his father understood what he was talking about. Okay? He was talking about himself, his wife, and their sons because they were the heads of the 12 tribes that were identified as the sun, moon, and stars respectively. They represented the foundation of the whole Jewish nation. When the biblical writers, therefore, spoke of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, they're not referring to the end of the world. They're referring to the complete dissolution of the Jewish state. We see this in Leviticus 26. Yahweh is talking to Israel here, and He says, I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. You shall flee when no one pursues you. And if in spite of this you'll not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Now, notice how the character of Israel's disposition and God's viewpoint is personalized. He says it's your heaven and your earth. So the terms heaven and earth belong to the and relate to Israel and evidently constitute a heaven and an earth. Now, one of the major areas of difficulty in understanding correctly heaven and earth in the New Testament is the misunderstanding how God referred to nations by this phrase throughout the Tanakh. Seeing the biblical concept of heaven and earth in the Tanakh will really help us correctly understand its use in the New Testament. Rather than assume that each time we encounter the phrase, it immediately talks about the physical universe being totally destroyed, apocalyptic language is common among the Hebrew prophets. The idea is seen clearly as we look at passages where mention is made of the destruction of a state and government using language which seems to set forth the end of the world. Look at Isaiah 1, 1 and 2. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now listen, who is God speaking to here? Speaking to Israel. And he calls them, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Is he talking to the physical creation? No, he's speaking to Israel. I think we see that clearly if we look at Isaiah 51, verse 15 and 16. I am Yahweh, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is His name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you're my people. Now what I want you to see here is the time of establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth that's referred to His here was performed by God when he stirred up the sea and put my words in your mouth. When did that happen? This is the Exodus. All right, stirring up the sea. He's talking about he brought them through on dry land. He put, I put my words in your mouth. That is God giving Israel his law at Sinai. 
He takes the children of Israel out of Egypt. He formed them in the wilderness into a covenant nation. And he, he says he planted the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. That is, he brought forth order, he brought forth government. So we see that he's referring to them in this sense of Israel is heaven and earth. This idea is seen more clearly when we look at other passages where mention is made of the destruction of a state and government using language that seems to set forth the end of the world, the collapse of heaven and earth. Look at Isaiah 13, 1 and 2. The oracle concerning Babylon. Okay, that's he's telling us, here's what I'm writing, okay? He's talking about judgment that's going to fall on Babylon. The word oracle here is the Hebrew word Massah, and it means an utterance of doom. Okay, so here's an utterance of doom concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of nobles. So this introduction here sets the stage for the subject matter in this chapter. You have to keep in mind as you're reading this chapter, what's it about? It's an oracle of doom against Babylon. You can't just take this and go anywhere you want and think it's talking about the world or whatever. The subject is Babylon. It's an oracle against them. The nation Babylon, not against the world. But look what he says in verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. So here, this is the day of the Lord for Babylon. And notice, this is a, gives us a definition of the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is destruction from the Almighty. That's what it is. Register that somewhere, okay? The day of the Lord means destruction from the Almighty. In this case, it's against Babylon. Verse 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. Now remember, he's talking about the destruction of Babylon, but it sounds like worldwide destruction. Now the terminology of a context cannot be expanded beyond the scope of the subject under discussion. The spectrum of language can't go outside of Babylon. And here's what you have to understand. If you were a Babylonian and Babylon is destroyed, would it seem like your world came to an end? Yeah, because your world did come to an end. That's your world. You're living. You're a Babylonian. So your world is done. And it seems like to you, everything has ended because you're out of it. He says, Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Now, what you have to understand here, this is a historical event. This took place in 539 B.C. The Medes went in and destroyed Babylon, and the Babylonian world came to an end. Now, this destruction in verse 6 that we read is said to be from the Almighty. But the Medes carried it out. 
The Medes went in there and they destroyed them. But God said, I'm doing this. Because God used the Medes to accomplish this task. The physical heaven and earth were still intact. Stars were still up there. Sun was still shining. But for Babylon, everything had collapsed. This is apocalyptic language. This is the way the Bible discusses the fall of a nation. And it's obviously figurative. Because you see this language several times throughout the Tanakh, and the world can't be ending a whole bunch of times. And we know, people, I hope you know anyway, the world didn't end in 539 B.C. Okay? It really didn't. Yeah, I know. It's hard for us to figure that out, but it still went on. Okay? All right, let's move to Isaiah 24 through 27. And in these chapters, we see the invasion of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar. He carries them away into captivity. Notice the language that he uses. The earth shall be utterly empty, utterly plundered, for Yahweh has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. They were disobedient to God, so He's judging them. Now notice, He says, the earth the earth, the world, the earth, the earth. He goes on. He says, Therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. Now what I want you to see in these verses is how Yahweh refers to Israel as the earth. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and it will not rise again. Now notice how many times God referred to Israel as the earth. Again, this is apocalyptic language speaking of the destruction of the people of Israel. So I hope you can see that the Bible does not always mean the physical earth when it speaks of heaven and earth together. We have to understand that. The same thing is true in Jewish literature. All right, this is, we see this all through the Bible. We've looked at several places where it's at the Bible. Jewish literature bears the same, they're in agreement, all right? Now, the Jews saw the temple as a portal connecting heaven and earth. They called it the navel of the earth, and they called it the gateway to heaven. We see that in Jubilees 819, 1 Enoch 26, 1. The navel of the earth, the gateway to heaven. And just like the Mesopotamian temple of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the temple connected God's realm to where humans lived. Now, to reflect on this belief, the Jewish temple had been built to look like a microcosm of the world. We see this in the temple hymn in Psalm 78, 69. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth. So the actual holy place and most holy place inside the temple building were constructed like earth and heaven. And the courts outside represented the sea. According to Josephus, two parts of the tabernacle were approachable to all, but one was not. And he explains that in so doing, Moses signified the earth and the sea, since these two are accessible to all. But the third portion is reserved for God alone, Because heaven is inaccessible 
to man. Now, the veil between the accessible and inaccessible parts of the temple was designed to represent the entire material world during Yeshua's day. Josephus and Philo agree that the veil was composed of four materials, representing the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. So heaven was beyond this material world. It was behind the curtain. Outside of the temple's microcosm of heaven and earth, the courts looked like the sea. Numbers, Rabbah 13.19 records, the court surrounds the temple just as the sea surrounds the world. Now, in Talmudic tradition, rabbis described how the inner walls of the temple looked like waves of the sea. From heaven and earth inside the temple, you looked out at the sea surrounding the world. Why? Because ancients believed that the earth was one giant landmass surrounded by the sea. The temple reflected that cosmology. The acceptable the accessible section of the temple and the surrounding courts embodied both landmass and sea believed to comprise the earth. So the most holy place was heaven where God's presence resided. We understand that. So the temple complex was viewed as heaven and earth. Now you have to understand this. The Jews of that day, we, we read from Josephus, Josephus Philo, the writers of that day, they understood the temple complex They viewed this as heaven and earth. That's what it represented. The Holy of Holies is heaven. That's where God dwells. The rest of it is the earth. Put that in your thinking. It's very important to understand. Now with this understanding of how heaven and earth is used in the Tanakh and how it's used by the Jews, let's go look at 2 Peter 3 again and see if it makes any difference to us. Now, if you pick up some commentaries and look at 2 Peter 3, you'll get stuff like this. This guy writes, this is by far the strongest passage to prove the consummation of time, the termination of earth as we know it. He's just reading 2 Peter 3. Well, that's the end of everything. Again, it sounds like that. Only though if you're not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the category most people are in. Okay? Because they just don't look at them. Well, let's look. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Again, that's what our text in Thessalonians says, and we'll get to that next time. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are in done will be exposed. Now, what is the day of the Lord? That's what we have to understand. And here's what it is clearly. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment on Israel. Okay? That's, you got to hang on to that. It's a time of judgment, not of the world, but on Israel. It is the end of Old Covenant Israel. Peter is talking about Yeshua's second coming at the end of the Jewish age. When the Lord comes, the heaven and earth of the Old Covenant will pass away. Now, if that temple complex was viewed as heaven and earth, did that end? Absolutely it ended. The Romans went in and they destroyed it. Yeshua said, not one stone will be left upon another. They destroyed that temple. They slaughtered the Jews. They took them off into captivity, the ones they didn't slaughter. That temple was shut down, never to be rebuilt. That's it. It's over. The day of the Lord came against Israel. Now, the words heavenly bodies here is from the Greek word stoicheion. And in most translations, it's translated as elements. 
And that throws a wrench in here because people think elements are going to be burned up. What elements are they thinking of? They think of the periodic table and the elements of matter. That's not what it's talking about here, okay? The Greek word stoicheion is only used seven times in the New Testament. And if you look at its usages, we see that it, stoicheion has two main meanings. It means elements of religious training, the ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of Jews. In Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible, the literal meaning of the word is element, rudiment, principle. In other words, this is the elements of religious training, the ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of the Jews. So basically, if the Jewish system shut down, then the elements were burned up and dissolved. And they literally were burned up. It got destroyed. Stoicheion is also used by many scholars, though, to refer to heavenly spirits. And that's why the ESV, and I think correctly here, translates this heavenly bodies. And what they mean by that is, see, the people of that time, they viewed the stars as deities. And they're saying the heavenly bodies are destroyed because those gods who were disobedient to God were destroyed also at that time. It was a battle that took place in heaven. It was a destruction that took place on earth. Now, obviously, stoicheion is not about atoms or the destruction of the world. Peter goes on in verse 11, Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be, your lives in holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the earthly bodies will melt as they burn? Again, if you're thinking of the temple complex, this is exactly what happened. They burned that thing down. Okay, If you're thinking of the earth, well, no, that didn't happen. But according to His promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Alright, so the old heaven and earth are going to be destroyed. Peter says, we're looking for the new one which wherein righteousness dwells. Now, what is being dissolved here? Well, the old covenant system is being dissolved, not the world. Where do you go to find a promise about new heavens and new earth? Isaiah 65 and 66. Isaiah says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, if you read Isaiah 65 and 66, you're going to notice that before God creates new heavens and new earth, He's going to pour out His wrath against Jerusalem. Okay, keep that in mind. Again, here we go, Jerusalem. The temple is going to get destroyed. Because they're, his, they're rebellious and they're God's people and they're being rebels, so He's going to destroy them. Now, when God created the new heavens and the new earth, notice that the physical death is going to remain. Isaiah 65, 20, Isaiah 66, 24. So there's still physical death in the new heavens and new earth. Home construction, agricultural, will continue. Isaiah 65, 21 and 22. People will have descendants. Isaiah 65, 23. Isaiah 66, 22. The Lord will hear their prayers. Isaiah 65, 24. There will be evangelism. Isaiah 66, 19. The new heavens and earth, therefore, must be referring to a period of human history. 
This is the period of the kingdom of God in which Christ rules in the hearts of believers. This people is the new covenant. And the new heaven and earth is simply another term for the new covenant. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is an expression taken from the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, where it's used many times in regards to judgments and destruction of various nations. So it's in the old covenant, it's against different nations. God destroys this nation, He destroys that nation, He calls it the day of the Lord. It usually meant a time when God Himself would punish or judge people, and He did this by armies of other people, The invading armies or other nations brought judgment and destruction upon these nations, but these times were called the Day of the Lord. While the various references to the Day of the Lord in the Tanakh refer to various nations, all the references, all four of them in the New Testament, Day of the Lord references, came in AD 70 when the nation Israel was destroyed. They're all referring to that time period. The phrase, the day of the Lord, therefore, in 1 Thessalonians 5, refers to God's judgment of the apostate Jewish nation at the end of the Jewish age when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman armies. That was the end of the Old Covenant. And again, people, if you just do a little research, you can find out that's that no more sacrifices, no more priesthood, no more temple, anything that made of Judaism ended in AD 70. You say, well, they're still Jews today. They call themselves Jews. They're not Jews. They're not bloodline Jews. The Jews were destroyed. Okay? And they're not obeying the Scriptures. They're not sacrificing animals. You can't have a... a, You can't have Old Covenant Israel without sacrifice, without a temple, without priests. You can't do it. It was all destroyed. God used Roman army to destroy them. That was the day of the Lord. It was the end of the Old Covenant and the consummation of the new. And we today live in the new covenant. The old has been put away. We're living in the new covenant. So when we read these passages like Peter, and it talks about the destruction of, sounds like the destruction of earth, all we got to do is get familiar with the language, and we realize he's not talking about us. There's not a day coming, people. I, look, I really hate to disappoint you. But there's not a day coming when God's going to burn up the earth. Sorry. Okay? What we have to understand is preterism is a very encouraging eschatology. Okay? We're not looking forward to doom and gloom. God's in control. He's sitting on the throne. It's awesome. We are in the new covenant. We're dwelling with God. Revelation, the promise of God was He would dwell with man. So He's here with us. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to take a sacrifice. Sacrifice has been made. We just go into His presence anytime we want. That's the joy of the new covenant. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you for the privilege we have today to have so many study aids at our disposal. Lord, I pray we'd be diligent to use some of them and to search some of these things out. Father, I thank you. And I ask that your people today would be Bereans. They'd not believe what I'm saying. They'd not reject what I'm saying. But they study it to see if these things are so. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege you've given us. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments.
Do you know what island um, in Hawaii that Holly's on? I'll find that out, David, and let you know. Thanks for asking. Okay, yeah. I love this question because I anticipate these things, okay? <clears throat> Someone said, referring to Genesis 8, doesn't while the earth remains imply that there's at least could be an end to it? You skipped over it. I really didn't skip over it. That wasn't what I was dealing with. The God is making promises there that he never again destroy the earth. And while, you know, some translations make it sound like, well, as long as the earth remains, these things will happen. If you look at other translations, it's clear that it's going to keep remaining is the idea that he's saying. And these, it's just going to go on. We're going to have seed time and harvest. That's going to go on. There's nothing in Scripture that talks about the end of the earth. Okay? And if you want to take while the earth remains to mean it's going to end, I think that's a little bit of a stretch there because you need something a little stronger than that, I think. But I know, what you're, I know where you're coming from there. She's in the Queens Medical Center in Honolulu. She's in Honolulu. Queens Medical Center. All right, someone said, I saw a Mike Sullivan video. Who is that? Hey, Mike. <laughs> Describing the apocalyptic use of heavens and earth as the Israelite leaders and the people. Are the terms heaven and earth always in regards to the Jewish leaders and people when used in apocalyptic context? No. As we said, in the Tanakh, it's used of other nations, but it's used of governments and nations being destroyed, and it's used as heaven and earth. So usually it's used, well, when it's used in an apocalyptic sense, it has to do with governments and nations. Now, of course, there are times when the Bible talks about heaven and earth, meaning heaven and earth, <laughs> the things we think of most of the time, okay? It's not always apocalyptic. Is the word forever in Hebrew same context as forever in the Greek? Yeah, it literally means age-enduring. Age-enduring. If you look at Young's literal translation, it'll help you, you know, get a better understanding of that. Okay, I think... That it? We clear? David? Um, one issue I had with, while you were reading the ESV, I noticed that they used the future tense and everything for verse 12 where there's where it's a present tense. So Peter was writing the heavens being on fire where the ESV has will will be set on fire. Okay. It should sound like it's something future to come. Right. When Peter wrote it has a present tense and the same thing with the elements uh, burning with heat is a present tense where they make it sound like something to come. All right, David is saying that uh, if you use Young's literal, and Young's does a great job at this, and I recommend whatever translation you're using, keep Young's by it. It will help you. Look it up in there. Young's in the passage in Peter uses a present tense, like it is happening right now, whereas we read at ESV, it's future. All these translators have views, okay? And they're biased. 
No, there's nobody without bias. So when you make it a translation, my view is the Lord's coming in the future, so let's make this a future here. You know, where Young is really trying, and I think he does a good job. Other than using Jehovah, you know, oh, that drives me crazy. Other than that, he does a good job, okay? And the reason I don't like the word Jehovah is because there's no such word. It doesn't mean anything, all right? There's no J in the Hebrew language, you know. It's not Jehovah. It's Yahweh, okay? So they got it wrong. That comes from a, you know, we've talked about that before anyway. But other than that, Young's, like I said, does a really good job. You want to understand the tense, you know? He does a really good job laying it out. Veronica? Too, but when you're talking about the kingdom, Young's always translates that as reign, yeah. and it really makes a difference because people think, oh, a kingdom is a place I'm going to go to, but it's not. It's reign. The reign of God is right now. So that's right. Really Veronica makes, that makes a good point there. Difference. You know, they they when we think of kingdom, we think of a landmass usually. Okay, some territorial reign where. Young's translates the reign of God. That's God's kingdom. It's his reign. And it's worldwide, you know, his reign. It's not a specific place, a specific territory. Anybody else? We done? Oh, wait a minute. Got some more coming in. Someone asks, how does the judgment and destruction of Babylon relate to the destruction of Israel? I'm not sure what you mean by that question. Uh, if you're talking about Isaiah 13, um, you know, it's apocalyptic language. When God destroys Babylon, He uses the same language that He uses... You know, if you're talking about in Revelation, where it talks about Babylon, that is a reference to Jerusalem. Okay? Babylon is Jerusalem. That's what God's talking about when He talks about that in Revelation, so it's being destroyed. If that's what you mean by that question, but the, the connection is apocalyptic language. Uh, Sandra from California says, Preterism is an encouraging eschatology. We live in peace with God, with His blessing and love in His everlasting kingdom. Amen. Amen. We're not looking forward to doom and gloom. You know, we're not looking forward to destruction. You ever watch these TV shows where they're trying to get you to give money because they want to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem so the Lord can return? I want to tell the Jews, don't do it. You're going to get killed. God wipes out the Jews. You know, it's like that. you don't want to go back there to get wiped out. I mean, it's like you just scratch your head and think, how dumb are people, you know, that they're... Uh, someone asked this question, what is the purpose of the earth if all believers are going to be in heaven? Well, we start out here, okay? This is where we start and we go from here. Why did God do it that way? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm enjoying my time here. I'm going to enjoy it even better when I get out of here, okay? But uh, it's, and you know, people have a hard time with the earth not ending. It's just going to keep going on like it is. It's been going on for a long time like this. It shouldn't bother you. Your, your time is going to go, and you're gone. And then the next person comes, you know? And I, I just, I don't know. It, it's a training ground. This is kind of like boot camp, people. All right, you're in boot camp, and graduation day is, you go to heaven. Okay? And I don't, you know, I've never really seen anybody crying about boot camp ending. You know? 
<laughs> yeah, they cry about boot camp, but not an ending. You know, it's like, I don't, I'm so glad to get out of here. No, and that's this. We're in boot camp now. We're training. We're learning to live for the Lord. When we leave here, it's over. And we're supposed to recruit. Do what? Recruit, Yeah, and we are supposed to recruit. <laughs> Absolutely we are. Uh, someone said, just read Isaiah 65, verse 1, sets up the destruction of the Jewish nation and the beginning of the church. Amen. That's what it's all about. That's the new heavens and new earth. See, again, people, we've we got to stop thinking literal. New heavens and new earth. We're thinking, okay, we get a new earth. It's all going to be different. You know, it's all, No, that's not what he's talking about. That's not what the, how it's ever been used. It's not being used that way now. We're in the new heavens and new earth. And people go, wow, I feel like I got ripped off. No, you didn't. Because the blessings are spiritual. And sadly, most people would rather have physical benefits than spiritual. But the blessing of the new covenant, listen, get this, God dwells with us. We are, if you're a believer, you're sacred space. You know, people talk about you going to the church, you go into the sanctuary. That's nonsense. You know what the sanctuary is? The sanctuary is the dwelling place of God. We're the sanctuary. So guess what? Wherever we go, guess what? God's there. We don't have to go somewhere to find God. He's with us. That's an incredible blessing that, you know, people are looking forward. I can't wait to this. Enjoy it now. You don't have to wait for it. It's already here. I had a conversation with my mother last night. Really? Yeah. Talking about the tithing or something and the altar or whatever. And I'm like, the altar? And so I just kind of explained to her, you know, that we're the dwelling place of God. You know, that's an auditorium. That's right. It's not a sanctuary. But it's just traditions, you know, they've always referred to it as a sanctuary. Right. So they just continue to do the same thing. Yeah, I fight that. Every time I hear it, I go to the front of the church, to the altar, I'm like, yeah. it's not an altar. <laughs> I know. How many animals have <laughs> been sacrificed up there, you know? <laughs> well, wouldn't that freak people out? Hey, people, come on. You're going to sacrifice an animal on the altar today. I always want to do that at a wedding. Because the wedding covenant, you know, is a sacrament. Okay, we're cutting this animal in half. And basically, the purpose of that is saying, may this happen to us if we violate this covenant. Wow, would you get someone's attention? Yeah, Peter would be having a fit over that, wouldn't they? <laughs> uh, they said, when Jerusalem is compared to Babylon, can the prophecies of judgment on Babylon be applied spiritually to Jerusalem? Well, it's more than that, because like I said, in Revelation, when God calls Babylon, he's, a, he's using Babylon as a term for Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jerusalem. He calls it Babylon. Uh, John writes, he says, boot camp is not supposed to be easy. Yeah, and it's not. Okay. Well, if you go to the Air Force, it is. But <laughs> if you go to a branch of the service, it's yes, it can be difficult. <laughs> What, someone asked this question. This thing just keeps coming up. What happens when the last elect is brought into salvation? Where, is there a last elect? You know, they say, well, it can't, it can't be an infinite number. Why? Our God's an infinite God. You tell me why it can't be an infinite number. I don't know. You know, I don't know what it's going to I just know what the Bible says. So let's, we got to stick with that. Yeah. There will always be. Someone, someone writes, we are from PA, would love to be there. 
we'd love for you to be here too. Come on. What's stopping you? What's stopping you? All right, someone writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it, people. And that's the thing. We're in a blessed position right now in the new covenant. And, and I think a sad thing is to have something and to be looking forward to what you have instead of enjoying what you have. And that's so many Christians are in that boat, looking forward to something that they already possess spiritually but don't realize.